The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here this morning. Um, In our study last week, we began to look at Christ's death on the cross. Now, this is not the sad postscript to a wonderful life, but rather the very culmination of all that Christ came to do. The crucifixion was the focal point of Christ's ministry. It was what He was deliberately and consciously working towards. And when we talk about the cross in a theological sense, we're not talking about a piece of wood that was used to torture men. The cross is metonymy for the doctrine of atonement. Now, I, I said last week the cross is metonymy, and hopefully, you know, if you don't know what metonymy is, you looked it up, but maybe you didn't. Metonymy is a figure of speech. And we all use it. We use it to associate part or something with something else. Like we'll say the White House when we're talking about the president. We're not talking about the White House. We're not saying the White House. And the White House said, you know, you all know, right? The White House wasn't talking or anything like that. Okay, we know. All right. And in, in theological language, we, we often will say the blood of Christ. And we're not talking about the literal blood that dripped out. We're, you know, it's metonymy for his death, for all that took place in that thing. All right? So um, <clears throat> notice how cross is used in this verse in 1 Corinthians. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of His power. It's obvious, He's not talking about a piece of wood being emptied of His power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He's not talking about a wooden cross, He's talking about the doctrine here of the cross. We see that in Galatians 5.11. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Again, we see here Paul's not talking about the instrument used to execute criminals, but a doctrine. The doctrine of the cross proclaims an event of historical and theological significance. It points to Christ who died the death of a criminal, but whose death concerned the eternal destiny. Of men. This doctrine of the cross is the doctrine of atonement. And the doctrine of atonement explains what exactly happened on Calvary and the meaning of the death of our Lord upon the cross. And therefore, I think every believer should understand and be able to explain the doctrine of the atonement. Because it is the heart of the gospel. To understand the atonement, the first thing you need to understand is that man is a sinner. See, a lot of tracks skip this. You know, they tell you the first point is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not where the gospel begins at all. It begins with you are a mess, you are dead, and you need some help. All right? Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death as a result of that sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam was man's representative. When Adam sinned, you sinned with him. And therefore, because he sinned and you sinned with him, you were born spiritually dead, born separated from God. Spiritual death. 
And in this spiritual death, there's nothing you can do to better yourself because you're dead. Dead people don't do much, all right? That's why this analogy, you're spiritually dead. Spiritually, you're unresponsive to your environment. Because of this condition, anything that happens has to happen from God's point of view. And so God invaded human history in the form of the man, Christ Yeshua. Yeshua left heaven to be born as a baby and to live a sinless life and die a substitutionary death on Calvary. On that cross, we talked about this last week, Yeshua took upon Himself our sin and received the judgment of God that we deserved as sinners. And because He was an innocent, infinite sufferer, He satisfied totally and completely the righteous demands of a holy God, and God was propitiated. Propitiation, we talked about that last week. You remember what it means? It's the removal of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. Christ was the sacrifice. He removed the wrath of God from believers. Sinners deserve God's wrath because they have violated God's holy standard. Believing sinners are declared righteous through redemption on the basis of propitiation. God's justice was satisfied by the death of of Yeshua. Sin, your sin, if you're a believer, has been paid for. And believing man can now once again have fellowship with God through faith in the sacrificial work of Christ. All this is possible because of the cross. And we began last week to look at the story of the crucifixion. We talked about what crucifixion was from the physical aspect of it. It was a horrible death. It was a slow, agonizing, brutal brutal death Which raised the question last week in the question and answer, why did Yeshua have to die this way? Why did His death have to be so brutal? I think there are two reasons for this. Number one, I think that God wants us to see how much He hates sin. He wants us to see the pain and the destruction that sin brings. When you look at Christ and you see what our sin did to Him, let me tell you something. In this life, your sin also is very damaging to life. People who get involved, Christians who get involved in sin, it's damaging. It affects you. Not in eternity, but affects you here and now. It's costly. Don't ever take sin lightly. Look at the cross and see how much God hates sin. I think we all understand that. But secondly, um, maybe you haven't thought about this, but had Yeshua died some other me- through some other method, let's say stoning, the way the Jews kill people, or maybe hanging, or maybe being beheaded, if He died that way, we wouldn't have the opportunity to see how He responded to the suffering of the cross. See, we get to look at it, we're going to look at this morning, Christ's time on the cross, and what we can learn from Him. See, we are to be, you and I, believers, imitators of Christ, right? The Bible says we're to mimic God. In Christ we see God. He came to manifest the Father. We imitate Him. 1 John 2, 6 says, you that say you abide in Him ought to walk as He walked. So we're, our calling is to be like Christ. So we're going to look at Him on the cross this morning and see that's how we're supposed to be. Now notice what the writer of Hebrew tells us. He says, Consider Him 
who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I think the writer here is encouraging the believers, consider Christ. Look at His suffering. Look what happened on the cross. Consider the cross as you go through suffering. The word consider here is the Greek word analogizomai, which means to consider by way of comparison. When we're in great physical or emotional pain, when there's a lot of stress on us from life, it's very easy to react in a way that is ungodly and unchristlike. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> and this is why Yeshua's example on the cross provides such great inspiration and such encouragement to us as we watch how He responds in the midst of great pain. This is what the writer of Hebrews was encouraging his readers to do. Now we ended last week with verse 18. There they crucified Him. Now, the other Gospels report that when they arrived at Golgotha, before they crucified Him, they offered Him wine to drink mixed with gall. You remember the story? If you read the, you read the other Gospels, alright? <clears throat> John doesn't bring this up because he doesn't talk a lot about what the other Gospels do, but they offered Him wine. But after tasting it, Christ refused to drink it. Now, most people see this drink as a narcotic that was used to ease the pain of the crucifixion. And so they say, you know, Christ tasted it, He didn't want to ease the pain, and so He refused it. Well, maybe, but it just doesn't seem right that they would be offering people something to deaden the pain. Because this is built for maximum pain, alright? Well, D.A. Carson argues that <clears throat> this uh, wine mixed with gall was a form of torment that amused the soldiers. He says, because the myrrh, or the gall, made the wine so bitter that it tasted very bad, was undrinkable. And so, in other words, here's these people, they've, they've marched to the cross after being whipped, and they're, they're you know, dying of thirst, and so they offer them something that they can't really even drink. It's just another form. While the Lord tastes this, He refused it. Whatever it was, the Lord didn't drink it. Okay, that's what we know for sure. We can be sure of that. All right. Verse 19 says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Yeshua of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, it was customary for individuals who were crucified to have a form of accusation written against them. The word inscription here is from the Greek word titlos. And we get our word title from that. All right, so they put this title, they put this inscription. And the purpose of this was so onlookers would see, here's why this guy's going through this. This is why they're going to the cross. All right, it's, it's, this is what they did wrong. And the idea was to scare everybody. Again, death, crucifixion is the power of Rome. Now, this, this placard that they made would either be hung around the person's neck who's being crucified, or one of the guards would carry this out in front, and I, I told you they, they would march the longest route they could to the crucifixion so everybody could see what's going on. They want people to see, you mess with Rome, this is what happens to you. When they got to the place of crucifixion, they would take this placard and put it on the cross. And the same reason, it was to make, cause people to fear to see why this man had been killed. Traditionally, they say this placard was painted white, and then the letters would be either black or red. So they stood out so people could read them. All right? Um, I think it's best, to, you know, it says here, Pilate also wrote. 
Right, that doesn't mean Pilate himself sat down and wrote this out. I don't think that happened at all. I believe it was a Jewish man who wrote this, and I'll explain that in a minute. But they're just saying, this is what Pilate told him to write. All right? And uh, Pilate wrote this inscription basically to mock the Jews. He's no friend of these Jews. He has just sentenced a man to die that he knows is innocent because of them, and he's not happy with them. All right? He doesn't like them, so he's just kind of taunting them. Yeshua had claimed to be the king of the Jews, and Pilate's saying, here's your king. Here's what we do to kings of the Jews. We kill them. He's just mocking them. Yeshua of Nazareth, king of the Jews. <clears throat> now, a very interesting suggestion that I read, this uh, I can't get into all the depth of this here, but there's a book out called The Quest for the True Cross. And in this book, they describe the fact that they found this placard, they believe. They believe it was the original placard that was put on Yeshua's cross. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But what happened was, from this, a Jewish scholar, Shalom ben Charin, based on this, the translation here, says that the first letters of each of these words, in the Hebrew, Yeshua of Nazareth, King of the Jews, would be four words. And the head of each, the beginning of each one of these was the yod Hey vav Hey, Which, you know, means Yahweh. That's the Tetragrammaton. That's the sacred name of God. And they said from the placard that they found, you know, everything was written from left to Right to left. Right to left, okay? And so they just feel like a Hebrew man took and described this, and, and so he's got this thing, and you know, Pilate tells him to write this, so he writes it, and Pilate doesn't have a clue about this, but the Jews would understand. You know, they look at the beginning of each of these words, there's a yod hey vave and he's saying, Yahweh. Yeshua is Yahweh. And all who were familiar with this Gospel would know that Lazarus has been saying this through the whole book. He's been pushing this. Yeshua has been teaching this through the whole book. So whether that placard said that or not, this is definitely, I just thought it was an interesting theory. I thought it was very interesting that, and it made sense, you know, that, that a believer writes this out and he goes, yeah, he's king of the Jews, but he's also Yahweh. Pretty neat stuff. All right, <clears throat> verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription. Of course they did. For the place where Yeshua was crucified was near the city. All right, it had to be outside the city. Like I said, the place of Golgotha now is in the city walls, but then it wasn't. It had to be, you couldn't die inside. It had to get outside the city. Uh, John says it was near. Other gospel writers, you know, tell us other things that, you know, wasn't far from the city. All right? And then he says it's written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. John is the only one that tells us this is written in three different languages, all right? And I think he does this for a reason. Now, these were the most important languages in Palestine at that time. And as I said last week, I think it should be Hebrew here, not Aramaic. All right, this was cut out last week from, you know, when, this is when the soundboard went out when I was talking about this. But to many of the Jews, to the Jews that, you know, love Yahweh, the Jews that cared about Yahweh, the Jews believed that Yahweh created the Hebrew alphabet, okay? They believe that, you know, in the beginning, God created. 
There's a word that's not translated in there. It's the Aleph and the Tav, Et. All right? They believe that God cre- in the beginning, God created the alphabet. That's what they believe. They believe this was a divine language given from God. And so I have a hard time thinking it's Aramaic here. You know, the Hebrews, this was the common language spoken by those Jews in Palestine. So that was their language. Now, Latin was the official language across the Roman Empire. Government documents were written in Latin. Educated people spoke in Latin. The Roman military and guard used Latin. Greek was the common language of commerce, trade, uh, in the Roman Empire. So we got these three different languages here. Why do you think John tells us that this inscription is written in three of the most important languages in Palestine at the time? Why does he tell us that? None of the other gospel writers bring this out. What's he trying to say? Well, throughout this gospel, he has been stressing that Christ came to die for the world, that God loved the world. Now, by the world, he doesn't mean every single person that ever lived. He's, he's meaning without distinction. He loves Jews. He loves Gentiles. And so here we write this in all the different languages because Christ is the Savior of the world. For all languages to see, the kingship of Yeshua that's denied so vehemently by the Jewish authorities is being proclaimed here to the whole world. They're saying, this is the king. Well, so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews. That's not right. He's not our king. Write this. This man said... I am king of the Jews. And Pilate finally gets cocky with these Jews. He's had enough. And he says, what I've written, I've written. And I think there's several ways of looking at Pilate's response here. Now that the threat of unrest has passed, because they're actually carrying out the crucifixion, he's no longer willing to accommodate their demands. So he insists on wording, you know, just what he knows will infuriate the chief priests and the Pharisees. He doesn't care anymore. And by identifying Yeshua as the Jewish king and then crucifying him, he's against you know, boasting Rome's superiority over the Jews and flaunting his authority. Some have also suggested that this is kind of a legal thing for Pilate. He's killing an innocent man, so he puts this on the thing, say, this guy is the king of the Jews, and we can't have another king around here, so he's being put to death, kind of to cover himself maybe. I don't know. <clears throat> what I have written, I have written. By the double use of the perfect tense here, I think there's some Johannian irony in the fact that Yeshua, rejected as King and Messiah by His own people, is now being proclaimed King by the Gentiles. So, they denied Him. Pilate's saying, I've written, I've written, He's King of the Jews. This man is the King. And He truly was. No matter what the Jews thought. John 19.23 says, When the soldiers had crucified Yeshua, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Now, let me ask you something. How many soldiers were there dividing up Yeshua's clothes? It's not a trick question. Four, okay? (laughs) Four. Now, this is John's telling us something here that the other Gospels don't either. Roman execution squads were typically made up of four men. All right, four guys, four soldiers. Your job is to crucify this one man. They're responsible for that. Now, as a job perk to the crucifiers, 
they got to take and keep any possessions of the man they were killing. All right? So Yeshua's garments would have included his robe, his sandals, his belt, and his head covering. So the soldiers divided these things up. They each got one piece of the clothing. But the tunic here, Chachton, uh, remained a garment. It was in one piece, so they didn't want to tear it up. They just, let's, let's divide this thing up. Let's, let's, um, let's gamble over it and decide who gets it so we don't have to tear it up. The other Gospels mention the soldiers rolling dice to divide Yeshua's garments, but only John makes a distinction between the outer clothes and the seamless tunic that was not divided. Now, usually, victims were crucified naked in crucifixions. But there's some doubt about whether Christ was. Because of the Jewish sensitivity to nakedness, You know, they think this would have been a huge offense to the Jews, and it's right outside Jerusalem, so... There's some good arguments that Christ probably had on some clothes, but they were undergarments basically, so they would have considered him naked. Not what we think naked is having nothing on, but you know they're stripped down pretty much. So whether that is true or not, I don't really know. I don't think anybody can tell you for sure, but uh, <clears throat> we don't know. But what's interesting here is that in Scripture, from the time of the fall of Adam, nakedness is seen as a symbol of sin. So here's Yeshua, naked on the cross, becoming sin for us. As one commentator has said, God could put clothing on the first Adam only because He would one day take it off the last Adam. In other words, He could only cover Adam because one day Christ was going to die for sin. He was going to be the sin bearer. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Alright? <clears throat> this was to fulfill the Scripture. Now, the Roman soldiers that were dividing up the garments, I don't think knew this prophecy. I don't think they said, Hey, remember what the Scripture said? we got to do this right now at this point. They had no clue about what they were doing. They were just gambling. They just did what they normally did. But God said they're fulfilling Scripture. Anybody know what Scripture they're fulfilling? (laughs) It's a psalm, all right? It's the death psalm. Anybody know what the death psalm is? It's Psalm 22 is the death psalm. Look at it. It says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This was written a thousand years before the time of crucifixion, before Christ's crucifixion. And I think that John mentions this detail to underline the fact that what was happening here is exactly what God planned to happen. This has been planned out since the beginning of time. Yahweh is sovereignly orchestrating every event. Jeff talked about this morning. He's in control of every one of these events. You know, men continue to carry out God's foreordained plan, though unwittingly. They don't know they're doing that. Like I said, one of them, hey, guys, remember Psalm 22 said this? We've got to do, this is our part here. No, they don't have a clue. They're carrying out the will of God. Now, scholars are divided about the significance of the tunic here. The word used in Psalm 22 that corresponds to the tunic was also used to describe the long blue robe of the high priest. 
And Josephus indicates that the priest's robe was a single piece with a hole for the head and arms. And some scholars believe that John's details here were designed to portray Yeshua as the true high priest. Got no problem with that. He was our high priest. And that's the whole idea. Like, John likes to pick out these little things. You know, oh, yeah, and he also had this seamless tunic picturing this is our high priest dying. Now, C.H. Dodd has shown that when the New Testament writers quote a verse from the Tanakh, they usually have the whole context of that verse in mind. We've talked about this in the past, all right? This is a technique called remez, or hint, in which you use one part of Scripture in discussing something, assuming your audience knows the context of that passage. Now, often today, we use a Bible verse that has nothing to do with anything around it, okay? It's called spoof texting. You take a Bible verse, you pull it out of its context, and you use it, you know? And one of the greatest ones is the homeschool verse. The homeschool graduation verse, right? Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans of good, plans of prosperity. And I'm like, read the previous verse. He's writing to the exiles, and they're in Babylon. You homeschool kids have never been in Babylon in your life. What is this about? But see, that's the thing. Nobody knows the context. Because we don't know Scripture, so we don't get it. The Jews did. They knew the Scripture, so if you quote one verse, you quote Psalm twenty-two eighteen. 18, they're thinking of Psalm 22 in its totality. And that's important. Because a lot of times in the gospel, Christ will quote a verse and you're like, don't get that. That's because you don't get the context. Go back and read the whole context. It'll make more sense. But they knew the Scriptures. So when John quotes Psalm 22, 18 here, he's got this whole psalm in mind. And we're going to talk about this whole psalm in a little bit. All right, Because there's some interesting perspectives that really come to light when we look at Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is quoted... 22 times in the New Testament. And Psalm 22 was considered by the Jews as the death psalm. And you read it, you kind of understand that. It really speaks of crucifixion. All right, it was at this point in time, chronologically, that the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke record that one of the robbers crucified with Yeshua began to revile him while the other defended him. He asked, you know, the one says, Lord, remember me. And we'll come back to that in a minute. I just wanted to establish a chronology here. That's kind of the chronological sequence of what's happening. All right, our next verse in John says, But standing at the cross of Yeshua were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, and wife Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, <clears throat> the four Gospels all list the women who stood there um, with Mary near the cross, but only John mentions that she was Yeshua's mother. Now, because of the lack of punctuation in the Greek, there's a lot of confusion as to exactly how many women were present. I mean, people argue with this. Was there three there? Is there four there? What's he talking about? But when you compare it with the other accounts, I think we can safely say there's four different women standing here, three of them named Mary, which makes the confusion even greater. It was a really common name at that time. All right, and so they're standing there at the cross, and there's somebody else there with them. We'll talk about him in a second. I think these four women here are in a juxtaposition to the four soldiers that are doing the crucifixion. 
And the Greek syntax suggests a contrast between the soldiers and the women. So you've got four soldiers killing them, then you've got the four women worshiping them there at the cross. And I think what we see here, and John's trying to sell us, is Yeshua is not alone in his death. Okay? Not everybody forsook him, not everybody took off. There's four women and one man standing by his side. How come there weren't more? Where's the other disciples at? They're all gone. Why? They're afraid. And see, a woman being at the cross is, is okay because the Romans didn't think they were a great threat. Okay, They're there to mourn, and we don't have to really worry about them. They're not going to try to take us over and get them down off the cross or any of that stuff. So they had no problem with women being there, but it was harder for a man to be there because, you know, okay, I'm here. This guy is convicted of terrorism. And so I'm there at the foot of the cross. Well, hey, are you associated with this guy? You a terrorist too? You know, and this is not a good situation there. So yeah, it caused them to fear so they would stay away. But one guy's there. The, one, the disciple who should love, who's Lazarus? Why is he there? Because he's been dead. And the Lord brought him back to life, so he is not afraid. Okay? You can understand that, can't you? If you died and someone brought you back to life and you, that person was a good friend of yours, I'm cool. Do what you want. I'm not worried about you, Romans, because I know the guy who's got the power over Rome, resurrection power. All right? So, all right, let's go on. 26 and 27 says, When Yeshua saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing there, that's Lazarus, okay? We've talked about that all through this gospel. Lazarus is the author. He is standing there, you know. Um, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, he says to Lazarus, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. All right, there is, you know, people trip out over this. He's calling her woman. There's no disrespect there, okay? There's only two women in Scripture who are called this. Anybody know who the other woman was? It was Eve in Genesis. So here's Eve. And here's the mother of Christ. Uh, there's just a lot of, lot of connections here, all right? <clears throat> now, this is the first time in the Gospel that we see Yeshua speaking from the cross. But in the chronology of that day, this is His third saying. There's actually seven sayings of Christ from the cross. We know the seven is the number of completion, totality. He speaks from that cross seven times. He's giving us a message. And it's interesting if we look at the different sayings of Christ from the cross, they have a different theme. They reveal Yeshua's innermost feeling as He pours His life out for us as an example. Now, and that's what I want us to see this morning. I want us to look at these seven sayings and I want us to see that Christ is an example to us even in His death. This is how He reacts in a time of great emotional and physical pain. Remember what we've studied so far. Remember all we've seen about how he got here and being on that cross, all the pain that's been involved. Um, I want to remind you of something. Yeshua was a Jewish rabbi, right? I think it's important to remember at this point. We've seen it in our study of John. The, the rabbis devoted their lives to the Scripture. The memorization of written and oral Torah was such a large part of Jewish education that most of his contemporaries of Yeshua had so much Scripture memorized, large portions. Torah. By the time a Jewish boy was 12, he had the Torah, 
the first five books memorized. And I mean memorized in a way that he could work with them. You could ask him, where are birds mentioned in the Torah? He could take right through. This is what they did. They just, 12 years. We got it all wrong, people. We're teaching our kids the wrong things. We're teaching them things that are not important. We need to teach them the Scripture. Especially today, people. Our, our education system is geared to communism. We're going to take these kids away from their parents. And they're teaching them stuff that they have no business learning. It's, well, i got to get off that and get, keep going here. All right? It's just sad, okay? It's anti-God, anti-Christ, education system. Every, they are, they're so screwed up. I read an article last week about a couple raising their children and they're not using pronouns he or she. They're the, what? Babies. Yeah, babies. Because they, don't, they want the children to decide for themselves what gender they'll be. People, you're morons. You're born either a man or a woman. That's it. You don't get a choice. And you can't change it. If you're born a man, you'll be a man because you have a man's DNA. I don't care what surgeries you go to. I don't care what you do. You're going to be a man. All right? It's not. We're making choices of things that are no choices. It's like, this is insanity. And not long ago, we called it insanity. Now, now we praise it. Oh, we praise you. You're being so open-minded. You, you know, someone has a baby. You can't even ask them, what is it? I don't know whatever it decides to be. No. No, people. It's just, our society is getting really sick. And again, it's the church's fault. The church is so far from God, so ungodly, so worldly, that it has no effect on the world anymore. Okay, where in the world am I? All right. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> that's right, with the seven sayings, okay? The rabbis were committed to the text. The rabbis not only learned the text, they memorized the text, they lived the text, they taught the text, they prayed the text, and it was the de- desire of every rabbi to die reciting the text. The Orthodox Israelite for the past 2,400 years has prayed that when he dies, he would die reciting Psalm 22 and die with Shema on his lips. Psalm 22 is known among the Jews as the death psalm. And I believe that everything that Yeshua said from the cross is a result of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is pivotal for a correct understanding of what Yeshua went through on the cross and what He is saying. So let's back up to the first of the seven sayings and go through them in order to see what Christ has to say from the cross. Anybody know what the first thing He said was? Very important. I think it's significant that it's first. What? Nope. Not yet. Nope. (laughs) And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. And Yeshua said, Father... Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had been mocked, beaten, flogged, carried this cross, nails driven through his hand, his feet, crucified, hung on a cross, and the first thing he says is, Father, forgive them. Isn't that the first thing we think of when we've been wrong? 
Instead of being consumed with his own pain, which I could cer- certainly understand, his own misery, he asked for forgiveness for the people responsible for causing him all that pain. I can only imagine, people, and this is my wild imagination, that as they're, Christ is laying on the ground and they're driving these huge spikes through his wrist, that the gods of the divine council are just in a fury. They're like, Yahweh, they're looking to Yahweh, let us go. We will wipe out those Jews. We will wipe out those Romans. We'll wipe them all out and bring your son back. And as they're begging Yahweh to let them go and unleash their full wrath on them, they hear Yeshua say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Of the seven last sayings of Christ from the cross, this is the first, forgiveness. Here Yeshua asked the Father to forgive. This is the Greek word, aphiemi, which means cancel, remit pardon. It's used of loans, as well as referring to remission of guilt. Forgiveness is choosing to no longer hold something against a person. It doesn't mean you forget it. We don't have that capacity to forget, but it means you no longer hold it against that person. In Yeshua's case, he's asking the Father not to hold his execution against his killers. He says, for they don't know what they do. Who's he asking the Father to forgive here? Is it the soldiers? I mean, to to them, Yeshua's just another criminal. It's just a day's work. This is what they do. Is he talking about Pilate? Pilate is arguably the most powerful man in Jerusalem. He knows that Yeshua is innocent, and yet... You know, because of his own career, he decides to crucify him. Going against all Roman standards of justice. How could he not know what he's doing? What about the Jewish leaders? I mean, the high priestly family, the scribes, the Pharisees, they've been wanting to kill this man from the very beginning because they're jealous. Crowds are listening to him. They're following him. How could they not know what they were doing? You know, but even though each responsible party acted wickedly, wickedly and unimaginably, Yeshua gives them the benefit of the doubt. He says, Father, forgive them. You know what? This is interesting. The Jewish, the, the Christian leaders in the early church felt the same way. Look at Acts 13, 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning. Spoken, spoken of Christ here and the Jewish leaders, they didn't recognize Him. They didn't know what they were doing. This prayer of Yeshua to forgive His enemies stands as a brilliant light that illumines the darkness of this time. Suffering unimaginably. And while He's suffering, He's practicing what He preached. Luke 6, 27-28 But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love your enemies. What other, who teaches that? What other religion teaches that? The Muslims want us to believe their religion is a religion of peace. But I've read their book. I know what it says. We're there to kill the unbelievers. You know what our Bible says? We're to love our enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. We all just did this the other day, didn't we? 
This is how Christians are supposed to... Can you imagine if Christians lived like this? Do you think the world would take note of that? They don't give us much credence right now because, for the most part, we're a bunch of hypocrites. But if Christians live like this, people attacking us, people trying to hurt us, people trying to kill us, and we're loving our enemies. Listen, we're to be like Christ. And this is where it starts. Look at Matthew 5.44, But I say to you, love your enemies. We are image bearers of Christ. When the world looks at us, they should see our Lord. And this is where it starts, people. Christianity is about forgiveness. It's about how great a forgiveness we have received from our Lord. And as Christians, we're to carry that forgiveness and show others the same forgiveness. Alright, we could keep going on that one, but we got to move on. Yeshua's second saying, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. Who did Yeshua say this to? It was one of the men that were one of the men that were being crucified with him. They're both thieves. They were crucified with Christ. Early on he had joined, they had joined together with railing against Christ, but by some miracle, this one thief changes his mind. He comes to believe. He had mocked Christ, but no longer. He says to him, we're receiving what we deserve. What? He seems to see his sin, but he also sees Yeshua as someone who can do something about it. Because he says to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, the Lord says. Today you'll be with me in paradise. What's Yeshua telling this criminal? Paradise is derived from the Persian word meaning garden or park. The Septuagint used paradise to translate the Hebrew words for the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 and 3. And over the years, the terms became synonymous uh, with heaven, referring to heaven. Now, a question that has to be asked here, did this thief go into the presence of God that day? No, he didn't. Because nobody went into the presence of God until resurrection, which doesn't take place to AD 70. So it's like, why did the Lord say, today you'll be with me in paradise, when that doesn't happen for 40 years, when... You return in the resurrection and take them into your presence. How did he say that? Well, uh, there's a lot of arguments here, but the simplest way, I think, is to realize the Greek had no punctuation. And simply what the Lord is saying, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. It's not the most satisfactory answer, but it's one that I can live with. Uh, and, you know, like I said, it's, I don't know how else you get around that. Uh, <clears throat> but I think that's the best solution. The main point here is that Christ is... Christ is dying a slow, horrible death, and he gives hope from that cross to another dying man. Caring for people, why he's dying. All right, the third saying we find in our text in John, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Now, Yeshua's mother, Mary, had four sons, and yet, for reasons unknown, he commits his care to Lazarus. You know, and it says, from this hour, some, some people believe that at that moment, Lazarus took her, and let's go, Mary, and they took her off. I don't think that's... I, think that's what it means. I think she was there. I don't think she was going to leave her son's side. I think, you know, this is just saying from here on out, you take care of her. And he did. Now let me ask you a question, men. Women, I need you to close your ears for a minute here. Men, how is your disposition when you're in pain or not feeling well? (laughs) You liar. Liar. (laughs) If you're anything like me, okay, I I might be the only one. When I don't feel good, 
when I'm in pain, I'm pretty ornery. Okay, I'm not really that pleasant to be around, even most of the time maybe, but especially when I'm not feeling good. But here's Yeshua, and instead of being consumed with his own pain or misery, he's caring for the people around him. We find the fourth saying in Mark 15, 34, and at the ninth hour, Yeshua cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the entire existence of God, which is from eternity, I can't wrap my head around that, but He always existed from eternity past. Yeshua and the Father and the Spirit had been in intimate fellowship, but now, because Yeshua is taking our place on the cross and bearing our sin in His body, He loses fellowship with the Father. And He experiences spiritual death. Spiritual death is separation from God. He was separated from the Father. Yeshua died physically and He died spiritually and that's why He calls out, why have you forsaken Me? Look at Isaiah 53.9. And they made His grave with the wicked and with the rich man in His deaths, although He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Here Isaiah uses the intensive plural of deaths. We have spiritual life because Yeshua endured a spiritual death. A separation from the Father as the sins of the human race were poured out on him. The fifth saying, I think, is also connected. After this, Yeshua, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. I think he was no doubt physically thirsty, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here. He's separated from the Father, and water is connected with fellowship, eternal life. That's illustrated in the Scripture. I thirst. In other words, I'm thirsting for what I've lost, my fellowship with God. Look at John 4.14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. He's not talking about physical here. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In Revelation, John tells us that the blessing of God's presence is They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst. Why won't they thirst? The sun won't strike them in the scorching heat because they're in the presence of God. There's no more thirst. And that's what he's saying. I'm thirsty. John tells us that water is life. Revelation 22, 70, the Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life. Yeshua was obviously physically thirsty. But I think it's so much more here. And I think the idea that the thirst follows the forsaking of God here just seems to fit. Our next verse in John says, A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, the two references together, remember we looked at the reference when we start this about gall from Matthew and sour, and the the reference... Trying to, my brain's working faster than my lips can keep up. We read the text earlier about the sour wine. Now again, he mentions this uh, this sour wine. Here is fulfilling scripture again. In Psalm sixty nine twenty one, he joins both of them. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. So first he mentions the gall. That's what they gave him at the beginning, and now they're giving him vinegar 
mixed with water. It was a cheap kind of wine. It was the kind of wine the soldiers would have had there to drink for themselves. But they're connected because prophecy, again, is being fulfilled in this death. Now, why does John mention here, he's the only one, and why specifically mention a hyssop branch? Matthew and Mark simply say it was a stick. Luke doesn't even mention it. One thing you have to realize here, Lazarus is at the cross. Okay, He's experiencing this. He's a first-hand witness. The hyssop plant had a particular link to Passover. It was the plant that was used by the Jewish door, that put the blood on the Jewish door frames. So he's connecting here. At Passover time, while the sacrifices are being slain, Christ is being put to death, and he connects hyssop. He just wants us to make sure we get it. This is the Passover lamb dying for our sins. Now, in the chronology of the cross, Mark tells us what happened next. He says, And Yeshua uttered a loud cry and breathed His last. This is really extraordinary, understanding the crucifixion, because asphyxiation characterized this. It was all they could do to try to breathe, so a loud cry, that would have been impossible. So when Christ did this, it was like, what? How's He doing that? How, what did He cry? Well, we find the answer. In John 19.30, when Yeshua had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up the Spirit. This is the loud cry He made. It's finished. It translates a single word in the Greek, tetelestai, which is a perfect passive indicative. It's the same word used in the first part of verse 28. We could translate this, the goal has been reached, or it has been completed or accomplished. This is actually a banking term, and it means paid in full. Numerous bills and receipts have been found from this time period that had been stamped tetelestai, paid in full. Do you get that, people? Paid in full. Matthew uses this term. Matthew, the tax collector, uses it. In 17.24, Paul uses it in the same sense in Romans 13.6. So Christ's cry from the cross can also legitimately be translated, it's completely paid. In fact, Yeshua finished or accomplished our salvation on the cross means there's nothing more to add, people. Nothing more to add. Now listen, the Roman Catholics teach that Christ died on the cross for you, but it wasn't sufficient to save you alone. You have to add your works to that. That is blasphemy. That is saying, Christ, you didn't do enough, you didn't care, you didn't accomplish it. But he says it's completely, completely paid. So how much do you have to add? Nada. Zip. Zero. It's, he, somebody else did it for you. The work of redemption, the eternal plan of the Father for the purpose of the incarnation, the salvation of God's elect, it is finished. Nothing more can be added to the completed work. It's finished. No works of righteousness, no rituals, no ceremonies, no rites of passage, there's nothing, baptism, nothing you can add because it's finished. There's no effort you can make on your own part. No duty you can carry out. No absolution you can get from somebody else. It is finished. Now there are those who teach that from the cross 
of Christ, Yeshua went to hell to suffer. But he didn't, because he says here, it's finished. It's paid for. Kenneth Copeland, how many know who Kenneth Copeland is? Okay, whacked out prosperity teacher. He's got more jets than uh, <clears throat> Bill Gates, <clears throat> but he's not in it for the money. Kenneth Copeland says this, when he said it is finished on the cross, he was not speaking of the plan of redemption. The plan of redemption had just begun. There were still three days and three nights to be gone through. He, Jesus, was down in that pit, and there he suffered the punishment for three horrible days and nights for Adam's transgression. That is totally wrong. That is totally against what Christ said. Yeshua died on that cross. He said, it is finished. His suffering ended when he physically died, and he died on that cross. All right? There's also many religions today that are seeking to convince people there's some sort of religious ritual that you have to do in order to complete your salvation. The Church of Christ teaches if you're not water baptized by them, you're not Christian. And you're not a brother in Christ. But that's absolutely contrary to what Christ clearly says on the cross. He didn't say, we're almost done here, people. Can you just pitch in a little bit? No, the work has been done. Yeshua cries out triumphantly that God's purpose has been accomplished. It's finished! The seventh and final saying of Christ is found in Luke 23, 46. Then Yeshua calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. You know, he looked forward to finally being fully reunited with his father, after being separated, at this dramatic moment, Yeshua died for you and me, and it becomes the Passover sacrifice for all who will trust Him. Notice what John says, he bowed his head and he gave up the Spirit. Gave up here means to hand over to another, indicating he voluntarily gave up his life. And that's so important, people, that you understand that here. He is giving it up. No one took it from him. He taught us that. John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. People, again, we're seeing he's always in control up to the very last second. When he dies, he chooses to. Gave up the Spirit. Gave it back. Now, with these seven sayings in mind, I want us to look at Psalm 22. and We'll close there this morning. The Orthodox, the Orthodox Israelite, as I said, for the past 2,400 years or so, has prayed that when he dies, he would die reciting Psalm 22 and die with Shema on his lips. And Yeshua was a Jewish rabbi. And I'm quite confident when Yeshua died, he died reciting Psalm 22. I believe that everything he said on the cross is a result from Psalm 22. So I'd like to close this morning by reading 22 and inserting the seven sayings on the cross as I think they may have been said. Now listen, this is not gospel here, okay? Well, gospel means good news, so maybe this is good news, but don't take this as, okay, he said it, this is it. No, I'm offering a suggestion here, okay? There's no way I can prove this. I'm asking you to just be a Berean and look at it for yourself, but I know that he quoted Psalm 22 on the cross, that I'm sure of. All right, let's start with the fourth saying. 
The fourth saying was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anybody know how this psalm begins? Take a hint. (laughs) My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? That's kind of obvious, right? He's quoting this from the cross. The second saying of Christ is, you will be with me in paradise. And Psalm 22, 2-5 says this, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy and throned on the praise of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. So the idea of being with Paris, he's delivering them. You, to you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. God delivered him. The third saying is, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. And Psalm 22, 6-10 says this, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. All right, he's crying out. He's connecting this with his mother. The fifth saying, he says, I am thirsty. And Psalm 22 11 through 15 says, Be not far from, far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. He's talking about crucifixion here. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And then he says, my tongue sticks to my jaws. That's thirst. That's, he's dying of thirst here. He says, you lay me in the dust. The seventh saying is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen through 21, Yeshua says, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Clearly speaking of crucifixion, I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We saw that being fulfilled. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the oxen. Into my hands I commend my spirit. He says, you rescued me. You delivered me. That's to be in His presence. The first saying was, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And Psalm 22-26 through 26 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. For you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. 
Those who seek Him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. He prays for forgiveness, and here we see forgiveness. They are praising Him. They are brought back in. The last saying in the psalm uh, we have here, it is finished. And in Psalm 22, 27-31, he says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kings belong to Yahweh, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive, prosperity, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. So here we see them. They're proclaiming God's righteousness, people yet unborn, that he has done it. So the psalmist closes with, he has done it, which is one word in the Hebrew, asha. And it can be translated either has done, he has done it, or simply it is done. And Yeshua is most likely alluding to this when he says the one Greek word, tetelestai, it's finished. It's finished, it's done. It's over, people. And here, Yeshua learned the text, spent all his life memorizing the Word of God, studying the Word of God. He lived the text, he walked it on a daily life, he lived it out. He taught the text, he prayed the text. And he died the text. So if you want to live your life as Yeshua lived, it starts with spending time in the text. There's no substitute, people. This is what our God did. He lived the text. You can't live the text if you don't know the text. You have to spend time in the text. You know, it's tough to be Christ-like Anytime, but specifically, I think, when we're in great pain, physically or emotionally. But as we follow the advice of the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews, and we consider Christ, and we look at Him on the cross, and we see His caring, loving example as He's thinking about other people, as He's dying in excruciatory... Excruciatory? Yeah. Yeah, as He's he's dying a painful death. We need to look to Him for strength that we can live as He lived. Because that's our calling, people. And I think that's the point. Okay, look at Christ on the cross. See your example. See how He treats people. See how He responds to suffering. See how He responds to His enemies on the cross. He's our example. Now, commenting on John's account of the Savior's crucifixion here, J.C. Ryle remarks this. He says, He that can read a passage like this without a deep sense of man's debt to Christ must have a very cold or very thoughtless heart. Great must be the love of the Lord Jesus to sinners when He could voluntarily endure such suffering for their salvation. Great must be the sinfulness of sin when such an amount of vicarious suffering was needed in order to provide redemption. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning. Lord, as we watch our Lord upon the cross dying, suffering greatly and dying, He leaves us such an incredible example, Lord. He not only taught us what to do, He fleshed it out. Lord, help us to realize that we have the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us and we are called 
to walk like you walk, to live like you live. We are called to be image bearers to the world in which we live. God, give us grace that we might do this, that we might be willing to love our enemies as you have taught us to, that we would be an example, Lord, to the world around us of what it means to be a Christian. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.